The text that we consider this evening is Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6, which we will reread. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. And Abram said, Lord God, what wilt thou give me, seeing I go childless, and the steward of my house is this Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, Behold, to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came unto him, saying, This shall not be thine heir, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven, and tell the stars, if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, something was on Abram's mind. And something had been on Abram's mind, likely, for quite a time. And the first indication of that is that the word of the Lord comes to Abram after these things. And in Scripture, and in the history of Abram that we consider, whenever the word of God comes to his child, and the promise comes, and God reaffirms the promise to his child, there's a reason for that. That is, this didn't just happen out of the blue when God comes re-impressing this promise upon Abram. But there was something on his mind. And the second indication that there was something on Abram's mind is the fact that God says to him, Fear not, Abram. Do not fear. And again, that doesn't come out of the blue, but there's a reason for that. There was something troubling Abram. Now, what was it that was troubling Abram? It becomes pretty evident when we read verses 1 through 6 of Genesis 15. Abram had no seed. He had no child. And that was a big deal. Because all of the promises that God gave to Abram, the promise of the land, uh, the promise of all nations being blessed, all of those promises hung on Abram having a seed and Abram having a child. But there was no seed, and there was no child, and Abram and his wife were coming on in age. Abram himself was about a hundred years old, his wife was a handful of years younger, and her womb was barren. So all of those things now are on Abram's mind. And he's been thinking of these things, probably from the first time that God told Abram his promises. Now this was the occasion for God to come to Abram in this vision and to give unto Abram and to affirm again to Abram the promise of a seed. And Abram believed God's promise and it was imputed to him for righteousness. Now that expression in verse 6, Abram believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. In fact, this set of verses here, 1 through 6, is one of the weightiest, most profound sections in the Bible. 
And the justification for that is the fact that we find these realities, this promise, this history affirmed again and again in the New Testament. Romans chapter 4 that we read revolves around the history that took place thousands of years ago in Genesis chapter 15. Galatians chapter 3 where the apostle goes right to this history again. This history of Father Abraham. Even James references Genesis 15 verse 6 here and he believed in the Lord and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now that tells us that this is significant and that the theological truths presented here are of the utmost weight. Especially now we think of Romans chapter 4. And we read Romans chapter 4 because of the commentary that that gives to what transpires here in Genesis chapter 15. And as we said, Romans chapter 4, coming on the heels of Romans 3, is the Apostle Paul demonstrating that this doctrine that he taught in Romans chapter 3, justification by faith alone, is nothing new, nothing novel, nothing invented by the Apostle Paul, but this is the way it has been in the Old Testament as well, from the very beginning of the history of God's people. Abraham was justified by faith alone. And when it comes to defending the truth um, in the New Testament, especially now with a view to the kind of doctrines that the Jews were promoting, you cannot appeal to a higher authority than the history of Father Abraham. And so that's what the Apostle does. Now the theme of the, the theme of this series that we have been using more or less has been the expression that Abraham is the father of us all. And it is especially right here in Genesis 15 in connection with Romans 4 where the Apostle makes that point. These things here do not just concern Father Abraham of the Jews uh, with nothing to do with us. But as the Apostle makes clear, what goes on here in Genesis 15 has everything to do with us as Abraham's spiritual children, Abraham being our spiritual father in a way. And so let's consider this text under the, the theme of the series, Abram the father of us all, but now under the theme, Abraham believed God. And that's the Apostle's way of describing what we read in verse 6. He believed in the Lord. The theme, Abraham believed God, noticing in the first place the promise, noticing in the second place faith, and noticing in the third place imputation, which is the way of describing that last phrase in verse 6, that he counted it or imputed it to him for righteousness. The occasion of the promise we've already addressed in the introduction and we saw that there was something on Abram's mind, and it becomes very clear that what it was was this matter of the seed. Now we say again, that matter of the seed was so significant. God promised to Abram, in your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. God promised to Abram, to you and to your seed I will give the land of Canaan, the promised land. So all of those promises hung on Abram having a child. But he had no child. And so God comes to Abraham here in Genesis 15 by a vision. The word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision. Now a vision was a mode of revelation back then. The way wherein God would reveal himself to his people uh, could have been a state of wakefulness 
And somehow God impressed and set forth in front of Abraham his word and the things that he says in Genesis chapter 15. And the main exhortation that God gives to Abraham is, Abram, do not fear. Fear not, Abram. And the ground that God gives why Abram should not fear is because of who God is for Abram. Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. That's why Abram is not to fear. Abram himself had experienced the reality of that. In Egypt, God was Abram's shield and did not let Sarah uh, be given over permanently to the Pharaoh in Egypt. That God was Abram's shield became evident to Abram when Abram defeated the kings of Mesopotamia. Truly, God was Abram's shield, protecting him and defending him. And then also that second expression, fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and I am thy exceeding great reward. That is, God freely gave himself to Abram to be Abram's reward. But it was especially that word reward. When Abram heard that word, then the questions began began to come. And when Abram heard that reward, Abram essentially unburdened himself, unburdened the thoughts of his heart to the Lord his God. Lord, what will you give me? Seeing I go childless, seeing this Eliezer of Damascus, the steward of my house, is lined up to be my heir. So when Abram hears reward, he says, what? How? I have no child, I have no seed. And Abraham realizes that to the end of the promises God gave him, there must be a seed. And that was God's way of drawing out of Abram his own struggles and the thoughts of his heart. And what a lovely picture here of God dealing with his children, bearing with them and helping them. God's promise to Abram was, Abram, that Eliezer of Damascus, that steward of your house, that is not going to be your heir. But you are going to have a child, Abram, you and your wife Sarah. You are going to have a child in your own age, and the son that comes from your loins shall be your heir. And that's God's word in verse 4. This shall not be thine heir, this Eliezer, but he that shall come forth out of thine own bowels shall be thine heir. That in itself was remarkable. Considering Abram's age, considering the age of his wife, an astounding promise. But then God does something even more. God amplifies his promise. God makes his promise as big as the sky. God takes Abram outside and he tells Abram, Abram, look up. It's a starry night. More stars than we've ever seen here in West Michigan. Abram, look up at the sky. Look at all of those stars. You see how many stars there are, Abram? Count how many if you can. Implied is there's too many even to count. And God says to Abram, Abram, so shall thy seed be. Abram, as many stars as you see in the sky, that's how many children, that's how how great your seed and your posterity shall be. An amazing promise. Not just an heir, Abram, but the sky full of stars shall be, that's how big shall be your posterity. Millions. 
millions of stars. Now, what does that mean? What's the significance of that promise? Or to ask the question differently, what seed is God talking about here in Genesis chapter 15? Historically speaking, typically speaking, that seed that God promised to Abram was Isaac, the son of his own loins, who came from his own bowels, who would be heir and who would inherit all of the promises. Then Isaac to Jacob, and Jacob to the twelve sons, and the twelve sons in Egypt. And there in Egypt, God would multiply for Abram a seed of millions. So the nation of Israel is the historical, typical understanding of seed. And that becomes evident later on in chapter 15 at verse 13, where God speaks of Abram's seed being a stranger in a land that is not theirs, serving them, and their being afflicted for 400 years. Now the reference there is to Egypt and to the nation of Israel groaning in the bondage of Egypt. So historically, typically, the seed here, the sky full of stars, has to do with the nation of Israel that would come from Abram, Isaac, Jacob, the twelve sons. But that's the historical, typical clothing, as it were, of the spiritual reality and of the true seed of Abram, which is not the physical descendants of Abram according to the flesh, but the spiritual descendants of Abram, namely every believer who would ever be. The church of believers, Old Testament and New Testament, Jew or Gentile, the children of Abraham. Now, the proof from that is especially in the New Testament. And Romans 9 teaches us that already with regard to the physical descendants of Abraham, a distinction must be observed. And it's the distinction that we read of in Romans 9, verse 8, where he says, the apostle, They which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted for the seed. Who is counted for the seed? the seed of Abraham, and it's the children of the promise. This idea comes out also in Galatians. Galatians 3, verse 7, the apostle says, Know ye therefore that they which are of faith, the same are the children of Abraham. So again, the spiritual seed of Abraham, the true spiritual reality of this seed, as many as the stars in the sky, is the believer's the spiritual children of Father Abraham. You find that as well in Romans chapter 4. Now we read earlier, Romans chapter 4, verses 11 and 12, where the apostle says that Abram might be the father of all them that believe, though they be not circumcised. So even the Gentiles, they who are not circumcised, children of Abraham through faith. And then also verse 12 The Apostle talks about they who walk in the steps of that faith of our father Abraham. And then verse 16, where he calls Abraham the father of us all. And he was not only speaking to Jews. So Jew or Gentile, Old Testament, New Testament, whoever believes, the whole body of believers, the spiritual children of Abraham. So that when Abram looked up into the sky that night, and when he saw those stars, he saw A star-filled sky full of believers, millions of believers. Quite a posterity that God promises to Abram. But there's more. Ultimately, ultimately now, in the highest sense, the seed of Abram is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the seed, 
capital letters, the seed of the covenant, the seed of Abraham. And that becomes evident, again, from Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3 has, a, has an expression that is of great moment when it comes to the seed of Abraham. And in chapter 3, verse 16, this is what he says. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, as, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. So there's the inspired apostle telling us that when it comes to the seed of Abraham, at the heart and at the center of that seed is the promised Messiah, the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about Genesis 22, verse 18, where God promises to Abraham, and thy seed shall all the nations of the world be blessed. Who would do that? Who would bless all of the nations of the world? Who would bring, bring blessing the world over? And the answer, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the seed of the covenant. And that was nothing new for the church of the Old Testament. It was not a, the, the Old Testament was not a Christless testament. But the, the hope and the comfort of God's people was Christ, the Christ to come, the promised Messiah. For him they longed and in him they hoped. He whom God had promised already in Genesis 3.15 when God said, when God spoke of the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent. There's Christ, the seed of the covenant who throughout the Old Testament was promised and in the loins of God's people and now in the loins of Father Abraham who would be born in the fullness of time. So to summarize, the seed of Abraham, Christ, and they which are Christ's, every child of God, every believer, children, seed of Abraham, in Christ. The promise then is quite rich here. Remember what God said to Abram. Abram, old man that he was, you're going to have a child. Not only that, Abram, you're going to have a seed as many as the stars in the sky. Now that was a tremendous promise. And what the wonderful expression, so simple and yet so packed with meaning, is that little phrase in Genesis 15, 6, and he believed in the Lord. Or as the apostle says in Romans chapter 4, Abram believed God. Faith, simple faith in so mighty a promise as that. What a, what a wonder Abram believed God. Let's consider that. Negatively, it means that Abram did not doubt God. Or to use the words of the apostle in Romans chapter 4, Abram staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief. Abram did not stumble. He did not stagger. He did not get tripped up so as to doubt God's promise, but he believed God. He trusted in the Lord. Now, from a human perspective, Abraham had every reason to doubt. From a human perspective, according to the thinking of the flesh, there was tremendous occasion for Abraham to doubt God's promise. And the Apostle Paul points that out in verse 18, or verse 19, where it says, And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body, now dead, when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of Sarah's womb. That's what was against Abram from a human perspective. On the one hand, he was a dead man. 
That is, when it came to having children, Abram's body was as good as dead. He was coming on to 100 years old. He was about 100 years old. 100-year-olds don't have children. And Abram was not ignorant of that. Abraham understood uh, the human body and how things work. But then there was Sarah, who was only a handful of years younger than Abraham. And the text characterizes Sarah as one whose womb was dead. The deadness of Sarah's womb. And there's a reason that the apostle uses the words dead there. Because he's about to say something incredible, almost incredible about God as the one who quickens the dead, brings life out of death. But that's what was against Abram from a human perspective. He was old, his wife was old, his wife was barren, his, her womb was dead. The way that the flesh would reason then, the whisperings of the flesh to Abraham would have been something like this. Abram, God just promised you a seed? No way. Abram, it's impossible. Abram, you can't believe that. You can't believe that, that this is going to happen. Have you forgotten how old you are, Abraham? Have you forgotten how old your wife is, Abraham? Haven't you, don't you remember that her womb is dead? There's no way it's going to happen. Thus reasoneth the flesh. And again, Abram was not ignorant of any of these things. Verse 19 of Romans 4 renders it this way, the King James, And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body. The idea, according to that translation, is that Abram did not let those things get in the way of his believing God's promise. But there's reason, um, or at least we ought to consider another way that that verse can be translated, and it would be this, that Abram being not, in, not weak in faith when he considered his own body. In other words, Abram was not ignorant of his age, was not ignorant of his wife's age, was not ignorant of his wife's womb. He did not pretend as though those things were not true, but he was well acquainted with those facts. He faced the fact. He, he faced those things right in front of him. But he did not become weak in faith when he considered it. On the contrary, Abram believed in the Lord. He believed God. He trusted in God. And he trusted God's promise. The history of Abraham, as it's explained by the Apostle in Romans 4, is a lovely description of faith. Faith which, simply, you could define it this way. Faith is trust in the promises of God. Or you could, trans you could understand faith this way. Faith is taking God at his word as God himself will be taken by his people. That's what Abraham did. He trusted in the Lord and he took God at his word even though everything seemed to be opposed to God's promise. God said, Abram, your seed is going to be as many as the stars in the sky. And Abram said, I believe you, God. I believe you. I trust you. I, I believe it shall be so because you said it. That's faith. Trusting in the Lord's promise, leaning upon that promise, taking God at his word. And when we say that faith is trust in the promises of God, that means that faith is trust in God who promises. Abraham trusted in God. He leaned upon God. He rested in God through faith in this promise. 
Another thing we learn about faith, and so lovely, Romans chapter 4, is that faith believes in spite of everything that seems opposed to God's promise. And that's the teaching of the apostle at verse 18, where he speaks of Abram, who against hope believed in hope. He believed against hope in hope. And the idea of Abram believing against hope is that from a human perspective, according to the flesh, there was not a shred of hope that this promise could come true. In fact, according to the flesh and according to the thinking of the flesh, everything seemed opposed to this promise. Abram's deadness, Sarah's deadness. But Abraham believed against all that and in spite of all that. And he believed in the hope that God had given him by his promise. He believed against hope. He believed in hope. So that we may put these words in Abram's mouth. Here is God promising to Abram a seed, as many as the stars in the sky. And Abram says, as it were, I believe you, God. Even though my body's dead, even though my wife's womb is dead, even though I'm an old man and my wife is old, and even though in, from a human perspective old people don't have children like this, I believe you and I trust you because you said. And he was firmly persuaded that's what we read in verse 21 of Romans 4, and being fully persuaded. There's the assurance of faith. In the face of the flesh, in the face of the, the hope against which we must believe. Now how could Abram be so sure? How could a, what ground was there for Abram to be so confident in God's promise? On what ground and for what reason could Abram be so firmly persuaded of this promise of God? And the answer negatively, not because of anything in himself, not because of anything he might do. Again, we saw that earlier. Everything, when it came to himself, there, there was, that was the exact opposite of a ground for believing God's promise. Not anything in himself. But the ground of Abram's faith and the ground of his firm persuasion of faith was the very promise of God in which Abraham trusted. It is that faith rests in the promise of God. Faith relies upon the promise of God. Faith stakes it all on God's promise. And that is the ground of Abram's confidence and of Abram's firm persuasion. I believe you, God, because you said it. That, that was the divine word to Abraham, the divine promise. And Abram recognized it as such, as a divine word, as a divine promise. Of course it will happen. Because God said. And because when God says something, he does it. And when God promises, he keeps it, no matter what it takes, and no matter what might seem to stand in the way. Again, this is the teaching of the apostle in Romans chapter 4. Roman, uh, verse 21, Abram being fully persuaded that, what was he persuaded of? This, that what he had promised, he was able also to perform. So there you see faith, the ground of faith, the assurance of faith being built rock solid on the promise of God. Because God said. Now, to say that faith rests in the promise and that that's the ground is to say that faith rests in God who promises. 
and that God himself is the ground of our faith and the reason for our confidence and the reason for our assurance. And that was true with regard to Abram as well. Now we look at Romans 4, verse 17. Abram believed God, but who is God? And we read in verse 17 that Abram believed God who quickeneth the dead and calleth those things which be not as though they were. Abram knew God. Abram knew who God is. Abram knew that even though he's dead and his wife's dead, God quickens the dead and calls death calls life out of death, and that he calls the things which be not as though they were, because God is so omnipotent and so powerful and so strong to keep his promise. And that grounded Abram's faith, and that explains Abram's firm persuasion, because God said and because God keeps his promise, no matter what, because he is God. Now this teaching in Genesis 15 and in Romans, 5, in Romans 4 is rich with instruction for us. Marvelous teaching, marvelous description of faith, marvelous description of promise. And the burden of the apostle in Romans 4 is to point out this, these things were not written just for the sake of Abram. But God had these things written for us who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham. And again, the burden of Romans chapter 4 is that the way it was for Abram thousands of years ago, it's the same way it is for us. The same God who promises. The same promise, essentially, in Christ. The same faith by which we believe God and trust in His promise. The same Christ, promised of old, fulfilled in the fullness of time. The sameness of it all. And the same ground on which we believe. When you think about it, the promise of the gospel is no less wonderful. In fact, it's more wonderful. Remarkable that God gave Abram in his old age a child. What power of God. But now what about the promise of the gospel, the promise of forgiveness, the promise that God freely pardons our sins, acquits us from all of our guilt, accepts us for Jesus' sake. That promise is no less wonderful. And there's so much against us. A mountain of sin, the guilt of our sins, the sinfulness and the depravity that always cleaves to us, all a testimony against us. Just like Abram had quite a testimony against him, a dead body and a wife whose womb was dead, it's even more so against us when on a spiritual plane with regard to the promise of forgiveness. Think about Lord's Day 23, justification. And what do we confess in justification? We confess this, that we have grossly broken all of God's commandments, that we have not kept one commandment as we ought, that we are still inclined to all evil. And now to hear a promise like that, a promise of forgiveness that God pardons us and God accepts us and God is propitious to us and that he will not destroy us but he receives us freely into his fellowship, When we look at ourselves, we are tempted to stagger. Just like, uh, to use the language of Romans 4, tempted to stagger at the promise of God through unbelief. We hear that promise declared. We look at ourselves and we say, it's impossible. 
It's more impossible than that God should call a child forth from a dead womb. That God should forgive me and accept me into his fellowship. I who have sinned grievously against him. For Abram, yes. For Paul, sure. For me, and we stagger at the promise of God through unbelief by a consideration of ourselves and our own unworthiness. God calls us to believe against hope in hope. Against hope, that is, against everything that testifies against us. He says, believe me, against all of that, in hope, the hope of the gospel of his Son, Jesus Christ. Trust me, God says. Do not doubt. Trust me. Do not look at yourselves. Look at me. Keep your eyes on me, the one who promises. Believe against hope and believe in hope. That's the... That's the the character of faith. Faith which looks away from all of that. Faith which rises above all of that. And faith which, which clings to and rests in the promise of God. Now what is the ground of our faith? On what basis could we ever be sure that God's promise is so? And the ground of faith is no, nothing less than the ground that it was for Abram when he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Negatively, the ground of our faith, the reason for our confidence in the forgiveness of sins, has nothing to do with who we are, that is, what we do, anything about us. We believe against all of that. Who I am is a testimony against forgiveness. We believe against that. Neither is the ground of our faith our own uncertain and fickle feelings and experiences. The moment we start to go down that road, that's a road that ends in despair. When we begin to drive out of ourselves some ground for confidence based on our feelings or based on our experiences. But those are as fickle as the wind. And the divine word transcends our feelings and our experiences. The ground of our faith as it was for Abram is the promise of God. God promises to everyone who believes in him forgiveness full and free. And that's what our faith clings to, and it's on that that our faith rests. The promise of God. That's the divine word on which our faith is built. So that even though everything testifies against me, we believe. Because God said, and because God promised. It doesn't matter how great my sins. It doesn't matter how great my sinfulness that's God's promise. And God is faithful and just to keep his promise, no matter what screams and shouts against us when it comes to the forgiveness of sins. Even as for Abram, in the final analysis, our faith rests in Christ, and Christ is the ground of our faith. And... 2 Corinthians, we read that Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ, all of God's promises are yea and amen. That is, all of God's promises are grounded in him. God promises forgiveness. Christ sealed that promise in his own blood. And it's on Christ that our faith is built. Just like it was for Abraham. As the quote in the bulletin said, the only difference is that Abram believed in the Christ who was to come, the Christ who was promised. We believe in the Christ who has come. And so the same faith saves us all because of Jesus Christ. 
Abram believed God, we read in Genesis 15, and it was counted to him for righteousness. We could say it this way, that faith was imputed to Abraham for righteousness. That's the teaching of Romans 4, verse 22, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. We may say it this way, Abram was justified by faith alone. That was the point of the Apostle Paul in adducing Abram as this wonderful illustration. He's saying the case with Abraham is no different than the case with us. It's the same God, same promise, same faith, same blessing, same ground. Justification by faith alone, as exhibited in the example of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now what does that mean, that God counted it to Abram for righteousness? What does it mean that it was imputed to him for righteousness? Righteousness, perfect obedience to God's law, perfect conformity to the will of God. And that is what is required of a man, to be accepted before God. That is what is required of a man for forgiveness. That is what is required of a man to stand before God. That perfect righteousness is what is required for a man to have God's friendship and God's fellowship and the blessing of God's covenant life. Perfect righteousness. Romans 4, or in Genesis 15, we read that it, he counted it to Abram for righteousness. Now what is the it there? What was counted to Abram for righteousness? And Genesis 15, verse 6, does not explicitly state it. But that's okay because God tells us what it is in Romans chapter 4. In Romans chapter 4, verse 5, we read that, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. So the it in Genesis 15, verse 6, is Abram's faith. God counted Abram's faith for righteousness. There was an imputation there. And God reckoned Abram's faith for his righteousness. God counted his faith for his righteousness. Another way to express that truth is what the apostle says in Romans 4, verse 6. God imputed righteousness to Abraham without works. That is, God did not view, count, treat Abraham righteous because of anything Abram did. But God gave Abram the righteousness freely, through faith, so that the reception by faith is opposed to working for this righteousness that we stand in need of. And the benefit for Abram, the benefit of a man who's righteous before God, is forgiveness, acceptance, the right to eternal life with God and the enjoyment of his fellowship. God counted Abram's faith for righteousness. But what does that mean? What is the relation between faith? between righteousness, between this counting, between this imputation. And here we need to be careful because subtle is the air that would end up turning the Apostle Paul on his head and his teaching on his head. What does it mean? What's the relationship between faith, righteousness, and this imputation, this reckoning that God did to Abram? Negatively, Faith here was not some work that Abram did that earned him his righteousness before God. There was, this, faith is not a work that earns. That's what we need to be on guard against. In the second place, 
Abram's faith here was not some kind of substitute righteousness, as though God recognized that his law was too hard to keep perfectly, so that all God asked of, of man, instead of keeping the law perfectly, is do the law work of believing. And God will accept that as some kind of substitute righteousness. That's not the idea either. Neither is the relationship this, that Abram's faith was his personal righteousness that met the condition for God's covenant fellowship. But again, there, there again you see faith becoming itself the righteousness before God. And the reason that we object to all of those understandings of the relationship is that if that were so, then God counting Abram's faith for righteousness in Genesis 15-6 would overturn the whole point of the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. Paul in the book of Romans has been at pains to point out that we are justified not because of something we do, not even because of our faith. And if it were true that Abram's faith were, his, were a substitute righteousness or were his personal righteousness before God that met God's condition, then Abram would have something whereof to boast. And whenever something gives man something whereof to boast, it's wrong. Because the gospel of justification by faith alone gives all the glory to God. And then you have to reckon with that, that astounding verse 5 of Romans 4. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him, that justifieth the ungodly. This God does not justify the godly as though their godliness deserves justification, but God justifies the ungodly. In the matter of justification, we are sinners. God justifies us as we are through faith in Jesus Christ. What then is the right understanding of the relationship between faith and righteousness and imputation? God counted Abram's faith for God counted Abram's faith to him for righteousness and that faith cleaves to the Lord Jesus Christ who is our righteousness. Not faith itself but the object of faith saves. And faith has as its object the Lord Jesus Christ and it's his righteousness that God imputes to us through faith the righteousness of the Lord. That becomes evident in Romans 3, verses 21 through 24. We won't read those now. The Apostle's point there is, listen, the whole human race is guilty before God. There is not one man who could do one thing to be justified in God's sight. For in God's sight there shall no flesh be justified. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And it's his righteousness, his perfect obedience, that God counts to us through faith, reckons us righteous for Jesus' sake, and that benefit being received through faith. That's the relationship here. The object of faith, the one in whom faith believes, that accounts for our righteousness. And it's only his righteousness that could ever stand before God's tribunal. Any view of righteousness on the matter of justification, that is, that is something man does, does injustice to the very idea of God's righteousness. God who is perfectly holy, perfectly righteous, and only the righteousness of his Son is acceptable unto him 
for our righteousness before his judgment seat. It was imputed to Abram for righteousness. Again, Abram was not ignorant of Christ. Abram believed in Christ. Jesus says in John chapter 8 that Abram rejoiced to see my day. The Jews bragging about Abraham, appealing to Father Abraham. Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Abraham believed in Christ and it was imputed to him for righteousness. And so it is with us as well. And that's the teaching of Romans 4 verse 23. Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also to whom it shall be imputed. If we believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered for our offenses and was raised again for our justification. That's the, the wonder of Genesis 15, verse 6, is that God wrote it for our sakes too. We who would come thousands of years after, we who would walk in the steps of the faith of Father Abraham and are counted for the seed. It was written for us. And a more accurate translation of verse 23 and uh, 24 is this. It was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but for us also, to whom it shall be imputed, who believe on him that raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead. Same God who promises. Same promise that has its essence in Jesus Christ. Same faith by which we believe against hope in hope in that gospel of God's Son. Same ground on which our faith is built promise of God, sealed, ratified, confirmed, yea and amen, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Father, which art in heaven, bless us by thy word and by thy spirit, and teach us daily to believe thy promises, to embrace them, and to rejoice in them, and in thy Son, Jesus Christ, in whom they are all sure and certain. We thank thee for writing thy word, not only for thy people of old, but also for us who came thousands of years after this history, and yet who find herein a wonderful, blessed truth which thou hast given to us, that we also might rejoice in Jesus Christ, as Abram of old rejoiced to see his day. Forgive our sins, and help us, and give us the grace daily to believe the forgiveness of sins and purge our consciences from all guilt and give unto us peace and gladness. For Jesus' sake, in whose name we pray, amen. Let us sing together Psalter number 83. Psalter number 83, in Romans chapter 4, the apostle also cites the example of David in proof of the doctrine of justification. Even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. Let's sing that Psalm of David, Psalm 32, Psalter number 83. And we'll sing all three stanzas.
The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. Amen.